Welcome to Standard Chartered Money Insights, a podcast series by Standard Chartered Bank that brings you market views and insights on the go. Hello everyone, my name is Manpreet and welcome to Through the Noise. Now, we've been seeing a lot being written on the technology sector and these days, while it seems like you can't get beyond even a single sentence on the sector without reading something about artificial intelligence, for financial market investors, technology continues to be a relatively well-performing sector uh, in recent months and indeed year to date. But looking even beyond the sectors, macro data over the past week has been has been interesting. In the US, uh, the data continues to be challenging because even though inflation offered a bit of respite, uh, you know, the lending data and in credit conditions from banks continue to point to a poor outlook. China's economy, of course, uh, contrasting in that it clearly leaves policymakers much more room to support growth. So bigger question is whether that is the opportunity we should be focusing on. Uh, joining me to discuss this and more is Audrey Go, who heads Asta Location uh, at the CIO office. So welcome, Audrey. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And let's start with that first question. Uh, the divergence in macroeconomic data, uh, which we which we really sort of came through last week, is that really the opportunity investors should be focusing on? Well, we do expect the diverging outlook between the US and China to create opportunities for investors. Um, in the case of the US, if we look at monetary policy, the Fed is likely to pause, but perhaps not to cut rates yet, given job markets are still very, very tight. And you know, inflation, although it's moderating, it still remains rather elevated. And to add to that, we have also seen the ongoing stress among regional banks. And that is likely to add to tightening lending condition. And there is also a non-negligible risk of a U.S. technical default as we approach the U.S. debt ceiling. Um, so far, we have seen very limited progress on raising the debt ceiling limits between both parties. Well, our base case here is that you know both parties, both sides will agree on separating the debt ceiling issue with budget uh, spending cuts thereby kicking the can down the road once again. This might entail raising the debt ceiling limit just enough for the government to meet its expenses, say, until the end of this year, giving them some time to regger over spending cuts at the annual round of budget cuts in uh, Q3, which starts in October. Such a plan uh, would certainly well uh, lower the near-term risk of a US default. Um, however, it would raise the likelihood of large-scale budget cuts later this year. And the extreme case where both sides cannot reach an agreement, um, President Biden can then invoke the 14th Amendment, which says that the validity of the US public debt shall not be questioned to raise the debt ceiling unilaterally, uh, thereby potentially opening himself up for litigation. And then in the meantime, uh, if you look at China, policymakers are likely to continue to stimulate domestic consumption and to revive private investments given still very low inflation. So given this rather divergent backdrop between uh, both regions. We do believe that uh, US risk assets are underpricing risk, while China as well as Asia Japan assets, equities and uh, US dollar bonds are looking rather undervalued. The rather uncertain and evolving uh, global landscape would also argue for an overall defensive position in foundation allocations, at least until we see you know, clearer signs that the Fed is ready to ease policy. And based on history, one of the best ways to position for U.S. debt ceiling risk is to be underweight stocks as well as short-term T-bills and overweight medium to long-term bonds, gold, as well as some safe haven currencies such as the yen as well as Swiss franc. And like I mentioned earlier, we also see extractive uh, value in Asia U.S. dollar bonds, Asian ex-Japan equities, as well as Chinese equities. 
Thanks, Audrey. Um, maybe staying with the divergence theme for a moment, uh, one of our asset class views where this divergence comes through is Asia dollar bonds and uh, developed market investment grade government bonds. Uh, as you know, our regular listeners will know, we're overweight both asset classes, but uh, for, for their benefit, could you help bring out how the two differ and, and perhaps why, we, why we're overweight on, on both ends of the spectrum? Well, we're overweight on both um, Asia US dollar bonds as well as DM government bonds. Both are high quality fixed income asset class and we do expect them to outperform global bonds over the next 12 months. Um, in the case of DM investment grade government bonds, default risk is close to zero. Although the nominal yield on offer is the lowest among bond asset classes, um, their expected returns are likely to be higher in a recessionary scenario. And hence, our view is that they can serve as an effective diversifier as well in a portfolio. Um, if you look at US yields, uh, they tend to uh, peak not too far away from the Fed policy rate peak, which is why uh, we, we expect the DM investment rate government bonds to outperform most other asset classes at this stage of the economic cycle. And then if we turn to Asia-US dollar bonds, uh, they are certainly higher on the risk spectrum given that they expose investors to credit risk on top of interest rates risk. Um, as such, these bonds offer a yield premium over the risk-free government bond yield. Um, however, when compared with developed market investment-grade government bonds, um, Asia-US dollar bonds tend to have much lower sensitivity to interest rates change. Um, although capital gains on Asia-US dollar bonds may be slightly lower, uh, may, uh, from, from, from lower bond use, um, from lower government bond use might be lower than developed market investment grade government bonds. Uh, we do view the current yield premium approximately around uh, 340 basis point at the moment as pretty attractive and largely sufficient to act as a buffer for potential market volatility. Okay, um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, U.S. technology sector, um, and you know, while I'd love to have a long conversation about AI, um, I, I think the real sort of number that stood out to me was uh, what we saw in the earnings season, and particularly the the earnings upside we saw in the technology sector. Uh, how do you see the balance of risk in the technology sector? I mean, I know we're neutral. Um, why not an overweight? Well, the U.S. technology sector has been outperforming the broader market year-to-date, and that's really driven by a combination of um, favorable uh, macro data points. Uh, for example, we saw an, a moderation in inflation data, as well as expectation of a Fed pause. And in addition to that as well, we've also seen the tech sector surprising positively in the latest earnings season, uh, delivering an earnings upside of just over 8%, which exceeds the 7% plus upside by the S&P 500. Uh, but that being said, uh, we do expect that on a 12-month horizon, the tech sector will likely perform in line with the broader market. Um, our expectation uh, in terms of a base scenario is a US recession in the second half of the year. And that is one risk for tech earnings, which we expect you know, to be likely uh, to have a dampening effect overall in the near term. And if we were to look at relative valuation as well, um, that will also likely to act as a headwind, given that the P/E ratio of the S&P uh, of the MSCI U.S. tech sector uh, has expanded to about thirty-four times relative to the U.S. MSCI U.S. index, and it's also significantly higher than its historical averages. Uh, which is why, from an investment perspective, uh, we do uh, suggest to investors to rotate into Asia Japan equities, where we'll see a more progressive earnings growth outlook alongside China's favorable stimulus as well as pro-business policy that will support investors' sentiment. 
All right. And finally, maybe just, you know, moving to the currency markets, of course, we've had quite a bit of central bank guidance uh, outside the US. Uh, when you think about currencies like the Japanese yen, the Canadian dollar and the pound sterling, um, what can we learn from what central banks told us last week? Well, over the past week, we have seen BOJ Governor Ueda re-emphasizing that he does not see a need to change the UK control policy in the near term. And that basically dampens investors' hope of a stronger yen, as it indicates that the BOJ could delay a shift towards policy tightening. But nonetheless, uh, we saw US dollar yen uh, falling sharply over the past two weeks, given that it has slightly benefited from safe haven demand because of the debt ceiling debate. And while the BOJ could shift their policy stance later than we initially expected, uh, we do expect US dollar yen to largely trade in a 132 to 135.75 range in the near term, and that's being supported by safe haven demand. Um, on Canadian dollar, it has been a quite notable outperformer over the past few weeks, uh, given that we have seen pretty strong labor market data, higher oil prices, as well as a pushback on rate hike uh, expectation from the BOC Governor McClum, which has also led the, the markets to sharply reduce uh, their expectations of a rate cut uh, for this year. Um, however, from a tactical perspective, uh, we do see the risk of a near-term consolidation or even a move higher towards 135 for the US dollar Canadian over the next few weeks. And then lastly, on pound, uh, the Bank of England hiked rates by 25 basis points and have also guided for further hikes in line for expectation. Um, while the GBP US dollar could certainly test the 100-week moving average at around 127.10, uh, we do believe that the negative real yields, because of their rather high inflation, uh, is likely to cap near-term gains uh, for the pair. And we see the 125 uh, to 125.10 as key support for any pullback for this pair. Thanks very much, Audrey. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. So we'll bring sort of the podcast to a close. Um, if I can, as always, just sum up my top sort of takeaways from the conversation today. First up, of course, on the point on divergence, uh, you know, the real opportunity coming through for investors, of course, is to rebalance towards, you know, Asia Japan assets, uh, equally on the equity side, as well as on the Asia dollar bond side. Uh, that's one message that comes through. Second, of course, on US technology, um, you know, the performance year to date, not something we can ignore, but the risks clearly more balanced than might be apparent from the performance alone. Uh, so more selective exposure there, neutral exposure, uh, and perhaps considering rotation again uh, to Asia Japan. And finally, in currency markets, uh, when we look at the yen and Canadian dollar in particular, you know, the near-term outlook looks a little bit more range-bound. Um, and the sterling, in fact, while we got the rise in, in policy rates, uh, negative real yields, of course, may, may cap gains there. So those are the top takeaways. Thank you, Audrey, uh, once again, for joining us uh, for today. And thank you, listeners, uh, for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, we hope you found that useful. Uh, but we'll bring the podcast to a close here. Uh, have a great weekend ahead. And we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thank you for listening to Standard Chartered Money Insights, a podcast series by Standard Chartered Bank. For more details on the latest market insights, subscribe to Standard Chartered Money Insights.